next week. So I've had that happen before. My first online classes, you guys probably doing your first online classes right now, or maybe you're homeschooled and you're like an expert at online classes already. But the first online class I ever took was in high school and it was health class, which... No, it's terrible. It was awful. Like, and that's why I took it online. I was like, I, I heard that you could get out of class. So what I did was I got my schedule, my, my last semester of my senior year, because I was in golf like a baller. Um, that was my fifth class. I was in health online and golf. So I only went to class for three periods. I was awesome. I, I rolled in at third period and I left at fifth, which for me was lunchtime, which for you guys in Capo District, that would be, doesn't matter. Point is, I did online health. And my problem with online health is I realized I'm terrible at deadlines. And if I don't have someone in my face telling me you got something due, I wasn't very good at it. Yeah, you guys feel that way right now? You got some assignments? Have you, okay, who has a missing assignment right now? Raise your hand. Yes, honest people. That's hilarious. Public school, I love it. All the people who raise their hand go to public school. Oh man, that's funny. Uh, yeah, I had a lot of missing assignments in health class. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. Because nobody was there to tell me what to do. But I, then, then I went to college, and then I started doing online college after I went to college for a little bit. Now I'm in online seminary, and it doesn't get much better. It's still like I got to get my stuff done. And there was an occasion where I may or may not have been at Revival Winter Edition last year, and I may or may not have not done an assignment, and I may or may not have like timed out a plan when I was supposed to do the assignment, and then I didn't do it. And then I emailed my teacher like, hey, like I'm just, I'm just at like this camp, like you got to give me grace, and he totally didn't, um, but it was okay. It was fine, but I procrastinated, and what happens when you procrastinate usually is you've got a time period when you plan on doing it, and then once that time period's over, you're like, oh, it's fine because it's not due for a while, and then all of a sudden, it's like, boom. It was due yesterday. You had that feeling? I've had that feeling before. Well, in the Gospel of John, that's what happens over and over again when these people are being presented with who Jesus is, right? We've already talked about all the times where Jesus says, you know, I, I am the door, I'm the good shepherd. He talked about how he's the bread of life. He talked about how he can give living water. He said all of that stuff. But the problem is the people he's talking to keep saying, mm, I'll do something about that later. Or some of them never do anything about it. They just hear him and they say, wow, interesting teaching. And they walk away. Well, today is when he finally comes to the end of all that. Okay, This serves as a transition period in the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42 is what we're going to look at tonight. It serves as a transition. And what basically happens is Jesus stops doing public ministry. He stops preaching to everyone. He, st he starts to move just towards personal conversations because he's been so public for so long. And everyone has just pushed him aside and said, no, we're not going to listen to you. And then some people said, yeah, we'd love to listen to you. And then they hear more of his teaching and they walk away. So I want us to check this out. John chapter 10, if you're not already there, John chapter 10, verse 20. Let's check out this scene. This actually, I think, takes place two months after the last verse. Okay, I think this takes place two and a half months later. And the reason I believe that, uh, and some people disagree with this, but the reason I say this is because you have this feast of dedications that was described in John 7. And I think every successive story in John 7, 8, 9, and even the beginning of 10, all happen at that festival in Jerusalem. I think what happens is there's a little two-month break in the story that happens between verse 21 and verse 22. Because in verse 22, check out what uh, the Apostle John says is going on. It says, at that time, the Feast of Dedications took place in Jerusalem. So here's what happens. This is a new feast. And it says it was winter. So the Feast of Dedications is the feast that we now know as Hanukkah. 
Right? It's called Hanukkah, and you probably know when Hanukkah is. It's always kind of around, you know, when Christmas is. It's at that time of year. The other festival that we looked at before was that festival where they're in tents. It was called the Festival of Tabernacles, right? We said it took place in October. So this is October to December, okay? I think there's a break in this text, and I think the reason John puts this, uh, this story here in the gospel is because of what we find out he said. So it's wintertime, and John makes that clear, which is interesting. Um, Hanukkah, I don't know how much you know about Hanukkah, but Hanukkah is this celebration of a time when the Jews were in big trouble. One of the many times in their history, they were serious underdogs. They were taken over by this king um, named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was this really powerful king. And what he did is he walked in the temple. And when he was in the temple, he said to everyone that he was God, which is weird. A king walks into this temple and says, I'm the real God. And everyone was like, whoa, okay. That's why they called him Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means um, like someone has seen God. So he's a very prideful guy. And what happened is there was this little rebellion that turned into a big rebellion where these guys, they were actually the sons of this priest. You might know them as the Maccabeans or Judas Maccabeus. He was this powerful leader who came up and basically defeated this powerful army. So these small group of rebels kind of take over the large territory empire that's in place. Now, that kind of sounds to me like the American Revolution. I don't know about that. Maybe I'm just an American reading this, thinking about, yeah, you know, those rebels kind of take over and they beat that big empire that was being mean, right? This was a lot worse, okay? These were not English people oppressing Americans by not giving them representation in parliament. These were people that were literally stealing their stuff, taking over their temple, and going into the temple of God, where the king walked into the temple and said, I'm God. This made the Jews so mad. And finally, someone stood up and started fighting it. And what happened was God preserved this nation of Israel and they were able to beat this big, powerful empire. They went against all odds. They were the total underdogs, but they won. This celebration that happens in the wintertime with the menorah and the nine little lights and candles, and that's why there's those nights of Hanukkah, all that stuff is to represent and to celebrate how God delivered the people of Israel in 167 BC, okay? That's the background. This festival is not described in the Bible in the Old Testament like you have to celebrate it because it took place after the Old Testament was done being written, okay? But this festival is one that they celebrated in Jesus' time. So that's all going on. So basically people are patriotic. That's the reason I bring that up. You know how on the 4th of July, everyone's wearing like red, white, and blue underwear and, you know, maybe not underwear, but you know what I mean? They're like wearing like American flag everything, bandanas, little fake tattoos. Um, You know what I'm talking about? Anyway, they're really patriotic, and they're like, oh, America, right? That's how they're feeling, but about Israel. Not about America, but about Israel. So they're all fired up about that. And it says in verse 24, the Jews gathered around him as he walks in this temple, which is interesting what he's about to claim while walking in the temple when they're celebrating the Feast of Dedications. It says the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? Some people translate this. How long will you, will you keep holding our lives out? which is a weird phrase. And what this means is, when are you going to finally just be open and honest with us? About what? It says, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. You guys remember what that word Christ means? In the Old Testament, what's that word Christ? The word Messiah, right? The promised one, the anointed one. The people of Israel were looking for a Messiah. They were looking especially, especially at Hanukkah. Especially at Hanukkah, because that's where they celebrate how God delivered them from an evil empire. These people are like, we want this to happen again. If you're the Messiah, 
If you're going to be the political military leader that frees Israel, tell us right now. That's what they want to know. Obviously, Jesus is the Messiah, but not the Messiah they think he is. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe them because you are not among my sheep. I think that's why John brings this back up because he references the sheep analogy. Remember we talked about that last week? John 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd and my sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me. But all the people that listen to me and turn away from me, they're not even a part of my sheep. And that is what Jesus brings up again. Basically says, you guys know all the truth. And the fact that you're asking me if I'm I'm the Messiah is a bad question. There is such a thing as bad questions. Have you ever had a teacher that says, there's no such thing as a bad question. They're all good questions. And they're just to educate you. Like, no, there are such a thing as bad questions. And this is one of them. Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Jesus says, first of all, I already told you. Remember John chapter eight, where he says, um, before Abraham was, I am. He already said that he was God. In John seven, he says, he's known the father. In John five, he talked about his intimate relationship with the father and that he speaks for God. So he's already told them. And they're asking again, can you tell us again? So at this point, you got to pause. Why are they asking him? Why are they asking Jesus this question? Really, if they've already heard and they already know, why are they asking him? I think the reason is they're trying to trap him. They want him to say, yes, I'm the Messiah, which does one of two things. That either gets people behind him and start a brand new army where they try to overthrow the Romans or it puts him out there like a, like a little sheep, just to use that analogy, to get slaughtered by the Romans. If he claims, I'm the Messiah who's going to take over the Romans, you know what the Romans are going to do? They're going to smush him, right? But if he says, I'm the Messiah, I want to take over Rome, what is everybody going to do? They're going to get so excited and be like, yeah, let's take out Rome. You're the Messiah, right? So these Jewish leaders who hate Jesus are trying to push him in one of two categories of their own making. But Jesus says, I'm not that. I'm different than what you say I am. And he starts talking about his sheep. And he says, my sheep, in verse 27, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And furthermore, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand because I am and the Father are one. So if that's not a pretty clear answer to that question of whether or not he's the Christ, that's a pretty clear answer right there in verse 30. What do you think the people do? What do you think these Jewish leaders do? You think they're like, oh, thanks for answering that question. That's awesome. Um, We believe in you now. I hope you've been reading the Gospel of John long enough to know that's not what happens. Look at verse 31. Check out what, what they do. It says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Again. This happened in John 5. And it happened in John 8. This is the third time, the third time just in this gospel that people pick up rocks and try to throw them at Jesus. It actually happens a fourth time in the gospel of Luke in the town of Nazareth. It happens at least four times. Maybe it happened more, but that's all the ones that we have count of in the gospels. Four different times people pick up rocks to throw at Jesus. Why? Because they're claiming in verse 32 and verse 33, actually is where they say it, you're blaspheming. Look at verse 32. Jesus gets a little snarky with them. He says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. I've done miracles. I healed the guy who couldn't walk in John 5. I healed the guy, the centurion's son in John 4. I also healed the man born blind in John 9. I've done many amazing works from the Father, by the way. Uh, Which one of these works 
is the reason why you're going to stone me? It says, for which of these good works, sorry, for which of them, these good works, are you going to stone me? He says, what did I do that you're going to stone me for? It was with healing the blind man. Do you not like that? Do you not like that I healed the blind guy? You're going to try to kill me for that? What about the guy who couldn't walk? Is that why you're going to kill me? Because I, I made him well? Was it because it was on the Sabbath? Did that offend you too much? He's asking a sarcastic question. And they respond, no, it's not because of anything you did, but it's what you said. Verse 33, the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Because you, being a man, make yourself God. You claim to be God. You claim to be like God. That's not okay. And on the surface, when you read this, doesn't this feel like they're like, they are the good guys and Jesus is the bad guy? It's like, yeah, if someone came in here and said, I'm God, wouldn't the right response for you to be like, yeah, no way. You are not God. That's totally wrong. That would be the right response, right? But here's the problem. Jesus is God. If Jesus did walk in here and Jesus came in here in some mysterious way, and he showed up and he proved to you that he really was Jesus, really definitively proved that by his works and his words. And he proved that then you shouldn't try to pick up stones and kill him, right? And here's the problem. That's what they did. Jesus was very clear to them who he was, and he proved it by his works, but they said, I don't want to believe in you. That's the problem that's being exposed through all this. Verse 34, Jesus answered them after they were, he was accused of blasphemy. He answered them, is it not written in your law? And this is a quote from Psalm chapter 82, verse six. Psalm 82, six, he's quoting something. He says, is it not written in your law? This is God speaking. I said, you are gods. And this is where things get a little weird. It's like, what is Jesus talking about? Is he saying we're all like a bunch of little gods? Not exactly. But this is from a verse in the book of Psalms. It says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture can't be broken. It's not telling a lie. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? Now, that's a very complicated sentence, but here's the deal. Here's what we're trying to get at. In Psalm 82, that is a psalm where God speaks to the leaders of Israel, the judges of Israel. And he said, I made you like your gods. I gave you authority. I gave you power. But because you've been disobedient to me, I'm taking all that power away. Okay? That's in the book of Psalms where God speaks to the nation's leaders. What Jesus says is, if in the book of Psalms, God calls people, little gods with like not a capital G, a little lowercase g. If he calls them that and gives them authority, why do you think it's blasphemy for me to call myself the son of God? Why? What does he say? Verse, uh, I think it's 37 or verse 36, sorry. Do you say of him whom the father has consecrated and sent into the world? Here's the deal. Jesus is saying in the Old Testament, the people who receive the word of God were called gods with a lowercase g. He says, but you know, in the New Testament, I'm giving the word of God. That's not blasphemy. I'm telling you the truth. I am God. He goes on. Check out verse 37. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, if I'm just a liar, then don't believe me. But if I do them, if I do those works, even though you don't believe me, just believe the works. Just understand this guy was healed. This guy was born blind and he was healed. Just believe that. And if you believe that, then you'll start to understand who I really am. It's the same thing today. We start to understand who Jesus is by what he does. We start to understand who he is. But the problem is the people saw what Jesus did and said, there's no way that could have been done by him. There's no way Jesus could have done that. 
There's no way Jesus is powerful like that. This must be a trick. They all deflected it. Verse 38 says, but if I do them, if you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is another big statement where he says, I and the Father are one. He's saying the same thing in verse 38 as he says in verse 30. And guess what happens in verse 39? The same thing that happened in verse 31. It says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. These Jews in Jerusalem did not want to embrace Jesus. Now, look at verse 40. Check out what happens when Jesus goes somewhere else. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And he remained there. And many came to him. And they said, John, the Baptist, did no sign. He didn't do any miracles. But everything that John said about this man was true. Remember when he said he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? That was true. Remember how he claimed all those big things about Jesus, how he's going to be the Messiah, and he was the promised one from the Old Testament? All of that is true. In verse 42, and many believed in him there. I think the reason John includes this little section is he's trying to show two types of people. And it's the two types of people I want to talk about tonight. There are people who take Jesus seriously and obey him and submit to him and realize he is the Lord. And then there's the people who procrastinate. There's the people who push it off. People who say, I'll deal with this later. I don't want to deal with this now. Just like in this room, there are two types of people. One group of you has taken Jesus seriously. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the truth that Jesus is God, that he makes a way for you to be saved from all of your sin. You've taken him seriously, you've repented of your sins, you trust in Jesus, and you're completely forgiven, and you're one of his people. And then there's another group of you, the other half maybe, who hears this word, that understands the truth. They, you know that God is holy, you know that God's a creator, you know he's just, you know he's loving, you know that you have a sin problem, you know all that stuff. But instead of doing something about it, you say, no, I'll do something about that later. Maybe when I'm older, maybe later. That's what happens here. And John's painting a picture of two types of people. The two types of people are basically defined on who we believe Jesus is. And you might say, well, I believe everything Jesus said here. I just not, I'm not a Christian yet. Right? Some of you fall into that category. You believe what Jesus says, but you don't take it seriously and say, oh, wow. If what he's saying is true, I need to repent today. If, he, if what he says about my sin is true, I'm in trouble, and I need to repent today, not tomorrow, but today. See, some of us listen to sermon after sermon after sermon, but we never take it seriously. We treat it like it's some fairy tale thing that we deal with at church or on, on Wednesday night at TNN or whatever, and we just kind of segment it up in our lives. And we say, we've got our friend life, we've got our family life, we've got our sports life, we've got our fun life, and we've got our church life, and it just kind of neatly fits in one category of our life. That's what happens here. That's what these people do. They don't take them seriously. I want you to write this down for point number one. We need to take seriously the claims of Jesus. We need to take it seriously. The Jews in Jerusalem are asking him questions. Saying, are you the, if you're the Christ, just tell us. Just tell us. They weren't taking him seriously. They wanted to use this answer to get Jesus in trouble. They were using Jesus. They asked questions, but they didn't really want to hear the answer. You know, sometimes I wonder... If we do that in small groups, or maybe with our parents, or maybe if you talk to a leader or with me or whatever, if you ask us questions, I wonder if you really want to know the answer. Or if you want us just to tell you, oh yeah, you're fine. God's good with you. You're, yeah, you're totally, you're, you're good. These people wanted to be told, we're fine, we're good. 
But Jesus didn't say that. And because of that, they hated him. But across the Jordan, where these other people were, who were not noble, they weren't from important families, they weren't very religious, they weren't instructed in the same schools, they were uneducated, all that stuff. The common people in a place called Perea, which this gospel doesn't even use that word. It's used in the gospel of Luke, where this time of ministry is described for like seven chapters in the gospel of Luke. We see this time period between December and March of the year Jesus died. We see these people believe. We see things like in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the lost sheep. We see all those stories when this little time period, when he's out there in Perea, where these people are believing. We see the parable of the good Samaritan. We see all these things where people are starting to come to faith in Jesus. Are you like one of them or are you like one of the Jews in Jerusalem who's fine listening to Jesus talk, who's fine reading their Bibles and they're great at learning and all that stuff and memorizing Bible verses, but they, they, they sit down, put it away and live their life completely differently and it doesn't, it doesn't hit your real life. There's a problem because we talked about this in John 9 with the spiritual blindness passage. There's a problem because when I try to communicate this truth to you, God says that for those who don't know God, that there's like this barrier. There's these blinders that are on people's eyes. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that spiritual things, spiritual truth, cannot be known by people who don't understand spiritually. And that might just sound like repetitive, but I'll read it to you. It says, the natural person, the non-Christian, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, right? God's Word. For they are folly to him. It's just foolishness to talk about a Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross. That's just foolishness to people who are just natural. They're just fleshly, just non-Christians, just doing their own thing. It says, because they're not able to understand these things because they are spiritually discerned. You need to have God's spirit communicating with you in your heart to even understand these things. That doesn't mean that you need God's spirit to communicate you to regurgitate facts. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is for it to actually penetrate your heart, you need God's spirit to do that. Problem is, for many of you, you felt conviction. You know what that feels like. To know you have, I know I need to repent. I know I need to respond to God. I know I need to do that. But many of you have not done that. You've pushed it off. Here, here's the thing I want to tell you. And this comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17 says, you need to be careful about doing that. Very careful. Because what you're doing is, you're basically pushing off God's direction and God's leading. So much so where he might stop pursuing you. Here's what it says. This is Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you, Christians, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. What this passage is about is talking to Christians, telling them not to live like they're non-Christians. But there's a little nugget of truth in here for those of you who are non-Christians that I want you to listen to very carefully. The next verse says, they, the non-Christians, are darkened in their understanding. They're darkened in their, what does that mean? It means it's like they don't see the light. It's like they've heard the truth, but they're like, ah, I don't even see that as truth. They don't embrace the truth. They're darkened in their understanding. Also, they're alienated from the life of God, which means they don't know God. 
They might know things about God, but they don't know him personally. They don't really know Jesus on a personal level. They just kind of know facts about him. That's what non-Christians are. Darkened their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance, that means lack of knowledge, that is in them due to their hardness of heart. It doesn't say their ignorance due to lack of exposure. It doesn't say that they're, they're ignorant and they don't know because no one's ever told them. What it says is, these non-Christians, they're ignorant to the things of God because they've hardened their hearts. They've heard the truth and they, just like the Israelites in the wilderness, rejected it. It says they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Any kind of sin, they're like, yeah, I want to do that. Bad words, oh yeah, I'm all about that. Bad thoughts, all about that. Bad relationships, all about that. It's like these people who hear the truth, reject it because they love sin and they harden their hearts. It's like they become deeper and deeper and deeper into that. And it says they become callous. You guys might know what calluses are. Um, you get them on your fingers. Anyone play guitar in here? Guitar? Any guitar players? Nope. A couple people? Yeah. So what happens is, right, you get calluses on the ends of your fingers, right? If you're right-handed, you get them on your left hand. You basically get them on the ends of your fingers. Uh, believe it or not, I played guitar for like two years, okay? Um, I got my calluses. I was really cool. Like I could slide up and down the fretboard without screaming in pain. Um, but that's what happens, right? If you're a good guitar player, you got calluses on the ends of your fingers. Here's the problem. Um, and I noticed this. When I use my phone, when I use my iPhone with my finger, my, my left hand, I couldn't feel the phone. That's what happens when you get calluses. You can't feel it anymore. So sometimes I'd use my phone and my, my hand would be on it. And I don't know, it's very rare you use your left hand in these fingers. But sometimes I would do it and like scroll. And it's like, was I, am I touching it? Like I could not feel it. Right, that's what happens if you get calluses. Now I have golf calluses. I have uh, a wedding ring callus. Also, I'm, I'm developing calluses. You have calluses on your hand too. Um, maybe you don't, I don't know. But if you play some sports or you do whatever with your hands a lot, you get these calluses. What they are is these tough spots that if you get, keep touching it and touching it and rubbing it and rubbing it, it ends up becoming strong and the skin is really strong, but the problem is it doesn't feel the same way that your other fingers do. Right? And the problem was I couldn't feel when I was scrolling on my phone. That is what's being described about their hearts. Hey, if you want to get calluses on your finger, that's a great thing. Especially if you want to play guitar, you will not be a good guitar player if you do not get calluses on your fingers. But here's the problem. If you have a calloused heart that is insensitive to God's word when you open it, that is insensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit when you do things that are wrong, if you have a callous heart, that's deadly. And that's exactly what these people had because of their exposure to Jesus. And that's why, in some ways, it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to hear the gospel preached over and over and over again. I think it's a good thing, and I think it's worth it. But it is a dangerous thing for you and your soul if you don't take it seriously. Just like that time where Jesus was talking to these cities. He, he talked about Chorazim and Bethsaida. There were two cities up in the north where he spent a lot of time. And what he said to them was, woe to you. He says, it will be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. He says, it's going to be better, not because you've done more sins than them. Not because you're like a worse sinner than them, or you've done worse things. No, it's going to be worse for you than them because you had me here. You heard the truth and you said nothing about it. And you kicked me out. He says, it'll be worse on that judgment day. 
You know, I think it's probably going to be worse on Judgment Day for people who sat in church and did not respond to the gospel of Jesus than it will be for the people on an island somewhere that never heard about him. People who lived thousands of years ago, who maybe didn't have the word of God in the same way that we do. That all they're kind of going on is natural revelation. They didn't have that special revelation. But you in your laps have the very precious words of God. That is a responsibility. It's a deep responsibility. And I'm not here to tell you, hey, I'm glad that you're in trouble. Right? That's not the point. What I'm saying is we are where we are. We have God's word. We have to respond. If all this is true, right? If he's telling the truth and all this is true about him being one with the Father, being the Messiah, being the Son of God, if all that's true, you've got to take him seriously. In verse 25, 26, 27, he has this discussion with the Pharisees. They're not the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. Some of them probably were Pharisees. He says, I told you, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. That was the problem for them, right? They just didn't belong to Jesus and they weren't responding. He says, but my sheep, they respond differently. And now here's what I want to talk about. Not just the response that we have to the gospel that's negative. If you're one of God's sheep, even if you have responded negatively in the past, I believe that if you're one of God's people, God will draw you and he's going to save you. He's going to do that. Here's the thing. I really want that to happen sooner rather than later. So as you hear this, think, I wonder if this is me. Verse 25 says, I told you and you don't believe. Those callous people. The works I do in my father's name, they bear witness about me. All those miracles, they should tell you who I am. But you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. Here's what my sheep do. They hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Those three things. That's important. They hear Jesus and his words in, in the Bible, right? In that case, it was face to face. Now, it's through God's word. They hear his words, and Jesus knows you personally. He knows you. And then, here's what you do in response. You follow him. That's what Christians do. Verse 28, he says three more things. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here's the amazing truth for every real Christian that you are one of God's sheep that he chose, that he saved, and that he will keep forever. That's amazing. That this God that we've been talking about has chosen you, led you to salvation, saved you when you repented, and you put your faith in Jesus, he made you clean forever. And now there's nothing you can do to undo that. You're permanently in. That's what he says here. And he goes on. Verse 29 makes it even more clear. My father, who has given them to me, which is an amazing statement, which means your soul was God the Father's gift to Jesus. He picked you, and he gave your soul to Jesus to save. Your life is a gift from God to Jesus. And he says, my father who's greater than all gave them to me. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Now, we've got two hands, right? We've got Jesus saying, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then him saying, also, no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. And a lot of preachers have looked at this and said, look at this, there's two hands, right? It's like the son's hand and the father's hand. And guess what they do over you? Clap you in, you're not going anywhere. You've got two really strong hands holding you in. You're one of God's people. You can't get out of it. He says, I and the Father are one. Even that's a good picture. Like two hands held together, holding something in the hand. He says, we're one. Our purpose, the reason why we're doing what we're doing, it's all one thing. The whole background of this is the Jews asking Jesus a question, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus, in essence, saying, yes, I am. 
But as Christians, I think we can look at this and write down, down for point number two, you need to count on the Messiah, on Jesus, to hold you forever. Count on Jesus to hold you forever. That's where your trust should be. When we look at this teaching about Jesus, it would be wrong if we didn't stop and say, wait a minute, if this is really true, and we take Jesus seriously, and we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, that means I'm held by Jesus forever? You mean there's nothing I can do to leave? There's nothing I could do? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that confuses some people, right? That confuses them. Hopefully this will help. I remember when I first started dating Alexandra, it's always a tense time in your first couple dates. Not tense because you don't like them, but it's tense because it's really nerve-wracking, right? If you know what it, <laughs> no, you don't know what it is. Sorry. Um, <laughs> imagine what it is like to go on your first date with somebody, right? Bates just threw his head back. He's like, oh yeah, I know what this is all about. Um, you can ask him about his love life later uh, if you're bold enough. But it's really scary to go on a first date. I'll just say it. It's scary because you don't know, like, are they going to even like me? Like, what if I say something that's, like, weird, and they just, like, hate me, and I, like, offend them, and they just, like, hate me forever, right? Or even in the first couple of dates. I remember we went to Chipotle first, uh, and then what, what, our next thing, we went to In-N-Out, right? Yeah, and that's where I held your hand, and that was like, ooh, big deal. I know, I held your hand. That was crazy. I know, I was bold. Second date, I know. Don't tell the Amish, but I did. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's bad. We're just representing John 10. We're just holding, no. We aren't. That's not why. But I remember thinking this could like go wrong in so many different ways. Like if I say something that offends her, like we're done. If I, if I do something that's weird or like funny that doesn't get taken the right way, she's gonna think you're totally weird. Like we're breaking up. I hate you. Um, I was afraid of that, right? But now when I go on dates with Alexandra, I don't have those same thoughts. <laughs> If I hold her hand, I'm not going to think, oh, man, if I'm smelly, she's going to leave me forever, right? I just don't have that thought. That would be foolish. It just wouldn't be a wise thought. Even if I thought that, it just wouldn't be true. She's not going to leave me because I say something that might be offensive, right? Because why? Because now she, because we got married, she made a commitment to me. And now I trust, because I trust her, I trust that she's not going to, you know, leave me because I said something weird or acted goofy, right? Oh, those first couple of dates, I wasn't sure about it. But now, because there's a commitment, I'm, I'm, I feel pretty secure. I was insecure then. I'm pretty secure now. Right, so that's why I'm a little goofier now. Sorry, wife. But I am a little goofier than I was in those first couple dates. That's how it is. Sometimes when we think about getting to know Jesus, we think, oh, we're just kind of dating him. Like if we do something that's wrong, he'll like kick us out and say, oh, you can't be a Christian now. Here's the thing. Jesus makes this commitment that he and the Father hold us, held, perfectly held by the Father, and by the Son. There's a total commitment there. He's completely committed, and here's why. He says, because the Father gave us to him. Okay, I want you to think about something theologically real quick. I want you to write down this verse, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. Here's what it says. This is Paul talking. He's excited because he's one of God's people. That's what he's writing about. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Wow, God the Father has given us so much through our relationship with Jesus. Even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I want you to think about something. Before God 
said, let there be light. Before that, you know what he said? That he was going to save you. Before that, before he said, let there be light. God thought of us individually and collectively, but individually, let's think about that first. Individually, he chose us before the Pacific Ocean was created, before Adam and Eve walked the face of the earth. Before all that, God chose us in him. He chose us before the foundation of the world. That should blow your mind. That God even thought of you. That God even cared so much about you before everything was created. Before there was sin, by the way. That's the other thing. Before there was even sin. Before Adam and Eve even chose to do what was wrong. Guess what? God knew they were going to do what was wrong. God knew that. And even so, he set up this great plan to redeem people for himself. It says, before the foundation of the world, he chose us. That we should be holy and blameless before him. He didn't just choose you to like be mean to you or do something like that. He chose you to be set apart from the rest and to be blameless in your character. He, he chose you to be different. It says in love, not out of a hatred, not out of a spite, not out of a random selection process, which is kind of weird, right? Sometimes you think, well, God just chose me like, you know, there's a bunch of numbers and he did the random number generator and he just, okay, 47, okay, 136, right? That's not how it worked. It says in love, purposefully, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, according to what he wanted. Now you might think, whoa, okay, here's, so here's what God did. He must have looked ahead and saw the people who were going to be good people then, right? He must have looked ahead and said, ooh, who's going to be the ones who, uh, who like Jesus? Okay, I'll pick those people. That's not what it says. It says in love, he just chose people to care about and to draw and to save and then to keep that's what we got to count on Jesus for. Another passage to look at, John chapter 8, or not John 8, Romans chapter 8, sorry. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Here's what it says. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to write it down. Romans 8, 31. It says, what shall we say to these things? After talking about how Jesus adopted us and brought us into the family, that he's the older brother, that we're like his little siblings, that he deserves all the inheritance, and he brings us along for the ride says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It said, he who did not spare his own son, talking about the father, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If Jesus died to save you, you, you know he's probably going to take care of you, right? I mean, if he cared that much about you to send his son to live a perfect life and then to die on the cross, you think he's, pro he's probably going to care about you a little bit, right? That's exactly what his point is. Verse 33, it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God's chosen ones. Who's going to bring any charge? Right? It says, it's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? What this is saying is, well, imagine a scene where maybe a non-Christian goes up to God and says, why did you pick that person? Right? And imagine they're talking about you. Why did God, why did you pick them? And then they say, well, you know that that person, imagine you're in the chair, right? And someone's pointing at you and accusing you, but they, they've lied to their parents. They've taken things that don't belong to them. They've thought some really bad thoughts. They've said some really bad things in their life. Right? And just imagine you're in that chair, right? And someone's pointing at you and talking to God. Here's what, here's what he says. Who's going to condemn? God already knows that. God already knows all your sin. And guess what Jesus did? He paid for all your sin. How can anyone condemn you? How can anyone say, hey, Jesus, you, I bet you don't know they did this. It's like, no, he did know. And he paid for it. 
God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is right now currently interceding for us when we sin. It's not that he's being sacrificed again, but when we sin, guess what Jesus is right next to the Father doing? Praying for us, pleading for us. Saying, God, I, I paid for that sin. Don't worry, I, I paid for that sin. We're not gonna kick them out because I, I died for them. Then it brings this up. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What about tribulation? If we have hard times in our life, distress, persecution. What about a famine? If we don't get to eat? What about nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. Christians were having a really hard time at that point. And it says, will any of that separate us from God? Any of that separate us from Jesus's love? It says, no, no, it won't. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The love of God in Christ Jesus, like two hands holding us together. Count on the Messiah to hold you forever. That's what he's getting at here. Isn't that cool? That even in this weird scene that's really not about this, and that's, I know this sounds like an aside, but this passage is not really about this, but this is a really cool feature that Jesus happened to include in this passage. This passage is primarily about the people who are rejecting him, but Jesus also includes, by the way, the people who don't reject me, my real sheep, they're secure. They don't have to worry. That's why you don't ever have to be afraid that you're going to lose your salvation. If you're really saved, if you really trust in Jesus and he saved you and he's forgiven you, you never have to be afraid. Well, okay, I blew it too many times now. Now I'm unforgiven. This just doesn't happen. And the passage when the Jews heard that, they're really mad because Jesus started off the sentence by saying, you don't belong to me. What Jesus is saying is his amazing works, his amazing words, all of that, was meant to point and to prove to us and to his audience and to everyone who would listen that he is really that powerful. He is really that loving, right? Because what he just said, those, are, those, could, those could just be claims, right? Those could just be words that, oh, I'm gonna hold you forever. They could be empty promises, right? But here's the thing. Jesus says, I've said those words, but you know what I did to back up those words? I took a guy who was born blind and I made him see. He like backs up all of those big claims by those big works that he did so that you can trust that he was telling the truth and that those people could trust that he really was telling the truth. So says the Jews hear that and they get mad. They pick up stones to kill him. Then Jesus has this weird talk about Psalm 82 and he talks about how God called them gods and why is it blasphemous that he's the son of God? Right? That's really what he's getting at. He's proving he's the son of God. And then in verse 39, what do the people do? They say, okay, great, we get it. You're the son of God, awesome. No, they don't. They reject him. They say no. If we're Christians, what we have to do is the opposite of what they did. They rejected the fact that Jesus was telling the truth. We need to embrace it and affirm it. So point number three is this. Affirm the son of God's authority. Affirm his authority. You're not confirming it, right? There's nothing that you can do to change it. You're just affirming it. Right, if you're really one of his sheep, this is actually a really good thing. That he is this powerful, that he is this in control. 
See, here's the thing. Did the Jews understand what Jesus was saying here? The answer might surprise you. The answer is yes. They completely understood what Jesus was saying. They understood that he said he was one with the Father, that he was the Son of God. They understood all of that. But here's the thing that they did not do. They did not stop to consider whether or not it was really true. They immediately just heard him say that and said, there's no way. There's no way. And Jesus says, what about these works? There's no, that must be a trick. You see what would cause someone to do that? Is an unbelieving heart. That I will not embrace that. I won't listen to that. I won't listen to you. That's, that's an unbelieving heart. And that's what motivated all of this. I want you to write down one more passage. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. This set of verses is a good one. And there's a lot I had that I, I chose this one because it says so much about Jesus' power. And I want you to think about that. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. I'll read it real fast and I'm going to tell you what this says about Jesus. It says, first of all, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which means Jesus is exactly like God. He's exactly like God. If God's powerful, Jesus is powerful. If God is strong, Jesus is just as strong. If God is loving, Jesus is just as loving. It says he's also the firstborn of all creation. Some people look at that and say, aha, that means that Jesus was made by God. But remember, John 1 says that's not true. What we think this means is he's the firstborn of all creation. It says later, he's the firstborn from the dead. You know, when Jesus rose again, when he died and he rose again, he lives forever. When Lazarus got risen from the dead, you know what he did? He died. So he got his old body back, basically, just remade to live for a few more years. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, which means he's the first to rise from the dead in a new eternal body. That's pretty cool. That's amazing. And it also says that his new body is the, the prototype and yours is going to be like his. That doesn't mean you'll look like him or you'll smell like him or you'll have the same hair color as him. That's not what it means. It just means that your body is going to be like his body. Perfect, eternal. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything that has ever existed was made by God and for God, specifically by Jesus and for Jesus and through Jesus. That means you were made for Jesus. It means the reason you exist, the reason I exist is to make him happy. It's not to make me happy, not to make you happy. It's like we, you, the reason you are here right now and you exist and you were ever born was because Jesus made you and he made you for him. Verse 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The world would explode if Jesus was not holding it together. Right? Your body would stop functioning if he wasn't holding all of it together. Right? The ceiling cracked, right? <laughs> See, that was a little reminder. He holds all things together. Right? Even the ceiling. Right? That's kind of a weird thought. But for those of you who are scientists, not scientists, but science majors, right? He holds every atom together. He holds all the chemical bonds together. Without his influence, every chemical bond, every atom, every fixture, every law of nature, gravity, all of it, time, it just, it just explodes if he doesn't hold it all together. Willfully, with Jesus' mind, holding it all together. Verse 18 says, he is the head of the body, the church, which means he is the, the king of the church, the ruler of the church, and he gets to make the rules. You know what he says? He says that we should come to church. 
He says we shouldn't forsake the assembly of one another. We should, we should come to small groups whenever we can. We should really be encouraging one another every day as long as it's called today. Right? He, that's what he gives us, those commands. He's the head of the church. He's the authority. It says he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We talked about that already. It says that in everything he might be preeminent. The reason he was the first to get his new body is so that you would remember forever that he's God. That I would remember forever that he's more important than me. That's why he got his new body first. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When he lived on earth, in his body. It's just crazy to think that all of the attributes of God, all of the holiness and perfection, all embodied in a single person. It says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's what else he did. He is reconciling people like you and like me to himself, making peace. People who are not at peace with God, right? Like, and that's the thing you got to remember. When I was born, God's enemy. When you were born, you're God's enemy. When I was born, I was a sinner. When you were born, you were a sinner at odds with God. And the only way that I can even know God and have fellowship with God and talk to God is if Jesus makes that happen. That's how important he is. And that's why looking at Colossians 1, it's so important because you see, okay, well, if all these things are true, then if Jesus is one with the Father, if all this is true, then all that stuff we talked about in point number two about Jesus holding you, that's, that's really going on right now for every real Christian. And all that stuff from point number one about taking Jesus seriously, that means you need to take him seriously. That means we got to be done with all of this listening to sermons and forgetting about it. It means we need to be done with all of this hearing the gospel and saying, I'll respond when I'm an old person. We just need to be done with that. It's just not right. Some of us, when we hear that Jesus is so exclusive and all that stuff, we get upset. Um, but here's the thing. Jesus is inviting us to this. Jesus is inviting you. He's saying you can be a part of all this. It would be mean if it was kind of held in front of your face like, ha, 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 you could never be a part of this. You couldn't know. It's like, no, Jesus says, no, no, come on. I'm inviting you to it. it makes me think of uh, what's going on this weekend in uh, the great city of Augusta, Georgia. There's a golf tournament going on this weekend. You guys hear about the Masters? You know what that is? The Masters. The Masters in November, a tradition like no other. Um, you want to hear a secret about the Masters? So um, when Alexander and I got married, you have to pick music for everything. Um, so I told our sound guys, just play the Masters theme song in the background for the entire time everybody walked in. So if you went to my wedding, you were listening to the Masters theme song, literally the theme song of a golf tournament for like 20, 30 minutes before the service started. So that's how much the Masters means to me. No, I'm just, um, but it's really cool. And like you watch it, it's like the nicest golf course. People say it's like Disneyland of golf courses. You know when you go to Disneyland, everything's perfect. All the hedges are perfect. The trash isn't on the ground. Right? And if it is, some person with a long stick and a, uh, a trigger like comes over and like picks it up and they take it to the trash or whatever. Everything's perfect, manicured. The water is a certain color. Soaring over California smells like oranges. You know what I'm talking about? Everything's kind of perfect. That's how the Masters is. So when I watch them, I'm like, oh, it's perfect. Just ask Mark. Mark will tell you the same thing. It's perfect. You know, I was looking some things up about the Masters. Augusta National is where they play it. It's a super exclusive club. I found out that they only hold about 300 members, which is not very big for a golf course that's so important. They only hold about 300 members. I also found out that you cannot become a member. I cannot become a member. 
If you want to become a member, you cannot fill out any application. You know how you become a member? One of their members dies and they select you. Like they select, you don't even like say, I want to be a member. They're like, no, no, no. Like, okay, you know, Mr. Johnson, he's dead. Uh, we got to replace Mr. Johnson. Okay, we'll go out in the world. Who should we invite next? Like you can't even join it. You have to be literally invited to become a member. It's just nuts. Um, there have been like famous people who've been turned down of memberships. Like very famous people like, hey, like, yeah, I'm a billionaire. You want to join my club? Nope, you can't join. We don't want you. <laughs> it's like this weird stuff. And if I ever was going to play Augusta National, I would have to be obviously invited. So I couldn't just say, hey, show up. Hey, I got some money. Like I've got a truck full of money. Here's $10,000. Can I play? They'd say, no, get out of here. If I said, here's a million dollars, they said, no, get out of here. No way. They're, they're that exclusive. And it's uh, actually a little bit scary. <laughs> if I was going to play there, I, I, I found out today that I would not be allowed onto the grounds until the member was there first. So like if I had a tea time at three and I showed up at 1.30, if the member didn't get there, I would not be allowed inside of the property unless the member was there first. So it's just kind of crazy, a little bit exclusive, a little bit nuts. And here's the problem. I have not been invited to the masters. Okay, that's just hurts my feelings, right? Just feel like I should have been invited by now. You know, <laughs> I don't know anybody, but I, you know, B Bill Gates is a member there. Maybe he should invite me. Warren Buffett, he's a member there. He should invite me. Uh, Peyton Manning gets invited all the time. I don't know why I'm not getting invited. Right? Pretty exclusive club. Here's the amazing thing. With all this stuff that we've talking about, Jesus invites you into a group of people that might be bigger than 300, but it's certainly more exclusive because you can never buy your way there. You can never work your way there, right? He invites you into his special group of his sheep where he doesn't just let you play free golf or let you have a cool green jacket. He lets you live forever, gives you eternal life, perfect life. And he's inviting you. But here's the problem. Many of you have got that invitation and you're not doing anything about it. And you're saying, no, I don't want to be a part of it. That's just, guys, it's just, we need to be done with that. You need to embrace Christ, even if it's for the first time. When we study how important Jesus is and how amazing he is, we need to be amazed and thankful that he did those things for us. Let's pray about that right now. God, thank you for showing us in your word that we can be a part of your family. As exclusive as it is, uh, we are just thankful that Jesus is the only way we're also thankful that he has invited us. Pray that these students who have so-called invitations that they have not responded to, I pray that they would change that tonight. That we take you seriously. That we talk to our parents about this. That we talk to our leaders about this. That we just really take seriously our relationship with you. And the opportunity we have to know you. It's exclusive. It's amazing. It's incredible if it weren't true. We're thankful it is. We're thankful for your power. We're thankful for the power and love of Jesus, your son. We pray that through him tonight, some of these students would trust for the first time that they put their faith in you and they'd trust you and that you would forgive them. We know that you are faithful and you've promised, so we know that you'll deliver. So we pray that some of these students would take that offer up tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, guys. See you on Wednesday night.